welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. Burns. My guest on this show is a former geriatric nurse and a counsellor. She writes poetry and lives in Hove, where we are speaking today. Alice Pennell OBE is perhaps best known to many listeners as the founder of the Gender Trust, a support organisation for trans people. She also founded a groundbreaking series of biennial conferences, bringing together international clinicians and stakeholders for the first time in the 1990s to discuss improvements to care for such people. But Alice was around long before that. In fact, she's just celebrating her 70th birthday. Alice, welcome to Just Plain Sense. 70 years. How does it feel to be celebrating such an auspicious occasion? Well, your introduction I found rather interesting. You described me as a geriatric nurse. Now, I was a nurse geriatric specialist, but now I am ah. a geriatric <laughs> myself. <laughs> My apologies. That's quite all right. Yes, in, in fact, I've, I've had several careers. Uh, first was in research chemistry and then nursing and then counselling psychology. And so uh, I come from a various types of, uh, of work and and experiences and it's all been frightfully interesting the trouble is i'm actually 15 years old in my head mm. uh, 70 is a is a an attitude of mind but the trouble is my body doesn't know that i'm falling to bits physically and so yes i have to admit i'm a geriatric who's had a triple bypass recently and i've got bladder cancer and hypertension and i'm a blue badge holder and uh, i'm now getting very interested in in care of people with disability, frankly, mm. which is very pressing for even more of us. However, it comes to all of us. It well, does. <laughs> shall we go back to the beginning? Sure thing. You're born in 1943. Paint me a picture of your childhood. I'm a war baby. A mother and father conceived me apparently on a haystack during an air raid in the Wirral. And it was a bit of an accident because dad was upper class and mum was not. Um, I suppose she would describe herself as upper working class. She was Catholic, he was Anglican. So from the, their parents' point of view, there was a problem about religion. My granny, my father's mother, was very anti-Roman. My grandma um, was very Irish Catholic, Liverpool Irish. And uh, it was a problem. But since I was already on the way, they did get married. And I was born. Uh, but Later on, sadly, my mother and father fell out and got divorced, and it was a messy, horrid divorce happening exactly while I was doing my O-levels. And uh, the family was fragmented and became really ghastly, and I was very unhappy indeed. Um, one of the attitudes that my granny had pursued was that I should go to a public school i.e. Wellington College, because generations of, of my father's family had gone to Wellington College. And I was sent to a prep school. And at the prep school, which was a boarding school, I was sexually and physically abused quite horribly. And I tried to drown myself, but unfortunately the lake wasn't deep enough. 
and um, so even at, at the, you know before the age of eleven, I I felt childhood is not the happiest days of your life by any means. However, I survived, and the reason I survived was because. I found a little frozen rabbit, which I warmed up with my body while I was howling and crying and just wanting to be dead myself. It came back to life because the warmth that I had left in me helped it, and I put it near um, a place where I knew there were some rabbit burrows, and it hobbled off into there, and I felt I'd saved its life, so I thought, I'll leave the, my death for another day, and went back to the school and was promptly beaten for trying to run away. Anyway, thank God I left that horrible school and subsequently learnt that the headmaster had been put in prison for abusing not just me but various other kids and uh, I have very strong feelings and emotions about about people taking advantage of children in that way because it did harm me considerably. But even before that, when I was a very small child indeed, I have had an overriding fantasy. Some, I think my grandma had told me the story of Bonnie Prince Charlie escaping from the Redcoats disguised as Betty Burke and uh, Flora MacDonald rowing him off to Skye and saving his life. And I thought, I'd like to be Flora MacDonald and save a hero. And because my father and mother were doing this pseudo-upper-class twit thing, uh, I was bought a kilt. Um, which I wore and loved, and to me it was my skirt, because I was a girl. Everybody had made a horrible mistake. I was not a boy. I was a girl, but I couldn't tell anybody because boys mm. are not supposed to say that sort of thing, and I didn't want to upset my parents because they had their own problems. So childhood was frightful, and uh, thank God, I, I, having left that school, went to a private um, school and then got a scholarship to a sixth form college where I did reasonably well. However, uh, when I was 15 in France, I was taking a, a shower and hating my body. I, of course, shut the door and shut the window. And I hadn't realised that in France in 1959, they didn't have the same building regs we do, nor did they have the same gas cylinders. They were using water gas, which is carbon monoxide mixed with hydrogen with no odorant and no no ventilation and of course I was singing and showering feeling quite secure and my heart stopped I, everything went blank so much for my modesty and everything they had to break down the door my heart had stopped for five minutes and I was resuscitated by Jean the French kid I was staying with to learn French and um after that, my short-term memory was hit quite badly, and I do find it very difficult to remember numbers. Uh, I've still got a reasonably high IQ, thank God, but that near-death experience was a very significant one, and I've kind of felt death has been stalking me all my life, and I've always told people, oh, I'm going to die young. <laughs> anyway, the following... You got that wrong, didn't you? <laughs> I suppose, I, well, I'm only 70. You know? <laughs> anyway, um the following year, Jean and I went swimming down the length of the River Allier, 19 kilometres from their, their country place to the city. And uh, we got caught in a whirlpool and I was a better swimmer and uh, resuscitated Jean. So each has given the other a life back. And that was very special and important. However, interestingly enough, 
by the time I was 15, I'd got two circles of friends. One circle that just knew me as Anne, which was the name I chose for myself, and another circle that knew me by my other name. And uh, the two had to never meet, because by that time I'd developed myself as a, as a as an out person, not out in terms of telling everybody I was, I was uh, one of these gender freaks, but out in in terms of out in society. And I felt far more relaxed being myself, a girl, than having to put up the front of being a boy. I, as as a boy, I didn't lack courage. I I went climbing and do, did those sorts of things, but. I felt so much more at ease in the company of other women and other girls. and uh, But it was a frightfully confusing time because I was never, ever attracted to, to men or boys in a, in a sexual sense. Yes, they're great as friends, but I knew I was attracted to other girls. I thought, what the hell, you know, what, what sort of dirty trick has nature played on me? Because I'm a girl in the, a body that's mixed up and I fancy other girls, I'm never going to be ordinary or normal. And, and above all, I wanted to be just ordinary. That was my goal. Mm. And so, in a sense, I had to be invisible to the people who really mattered. I could never talk to anybody about what turmoil was in my mind, in my heart and spirit. And it was crushing and very, very, very depressing and exhausting and took up so much time. Anyway, to cut a long story short, and I won't go into it too much, I eventually met somebody who I fell in love with, and she and I got uh, five years together before we got married, and um, I explained everything, and one day she said, well, I'd like to meet your alter ego, and so she met me uh, as myself. And there was a confusion, because my name for me had always been Anne. Her sister's name was Anne. And so my partner, wife-to-be, um, said, we, we can't call you Anne because we'll get confused when we're talking about you in the third person. You, what what other name would suit you? Well, at, at boarding school, my nickname was Dormouse, and I'd always enjoyed Alice in Wonderland. And I liked the name Alice, so I, I chose that name. And uh, so Alice was a result of, of the person I fell in love with, um, that pushed me away from the original name I'd chosen, which was an old family name mm. for the first daughter. Anyway, um, a year after... Um, so we're in the 1960s now, are we? Well, yes, yes. I got married in 66. We got engaged. We, we got together and I told my ex uh, um, in 1962. Uh, so we had f four or five years during which time there was plenty of time for each of us to explore the other. And I thought, you know, that love conquers all. I fondly hoped and wished that it would and that we'd be together forever. And so we had a, a, a wonderful wedding and a friend played the organ, Vidor's Toccata, and it was very, very beautiful. And we went on honeymoon in Paris together. The awkward thing was um, somebody sabotaged my case and in my case, we got to identical 90s and they'd, they'd put three telephone directories in, so my luggage was overweight. But I think in, in the secrecy, nobody twigged that 
the one nighter was slightly larger than the other. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, we had a, a Paris honeymoon and it was gorgeous. And then a year later, my first daughter was born and then the second and then uh, a son was born. And um, during all this time, I'd had various jobs in chemistry and this sort of thing and uh, other other things. And I eventually had decided that I had to do something to help people in the same dilemma and dichotomy as myself. And what really spurred it on was on my way back from work in a seaside town in Sussex, I came across a small boy aged about 11 who was dressed as a girl hanging from a tree. He hadn't been cut down and I arrived just a few moments and before a police car arrived and this man got out. This man was the child's father and he walked up to see his son dressed as a girl hanging dead from this tree and a small crowd and police were standing around. The man said out loud, the little bastard, and stormed off. I could have been that child. So many other people could have been that child. So I then got involved with Samaritans. And, you know, I'd had experience of, of wanting to end the pain that one gets in life. And I hadn't much experience, but I took Sam's training and and did a lot of work with Samaritans. And what I discovered, to my amazement, that a third of the calls were from people with gender difficulties, and then an another large portion were with sexuality difficulties. Because back in 1966 to 1996, <laughs> shall we say, for a long, long time, if you were an outsider, if you were gay... It was awful. Families disowned people. If you were trans, it was even worse. Everybody disowned you. And uh, it became increasingly obvious that the last outsider, the last taboo, was the trans person. If, if, if you looked at the medical textbooks that I saw and studied, because I went through the postgraduate medical library looking at every single uh, report and study there was, Everything seemed to suggest that anybody who was intersex was a loony. Everybody who was trans was some sort of deviant, that homosexuality was a, a, an illness. And believe it or not, they were still carrying out lobotomies and uh, and aversion therapies. And, and medicine itself was geared up to curing people who were gay or trans, to making intersex people into one sex or another without their permission. The The medics acted like gods in reinforcing the gender binary and the heterosexual dominance. Um, and it was frightful and it was ghastly. Anyway, um, I searched and searched through bookshops and, of course, I read Kraft Ebbing and, and uh, Magnus Hirschfeld and Freud and or everybody you could think of and always they associated anything to do with gender variance as a type of deviance and I got more and more horrified by this and I thought what the hell am I going to do and I came across would you believe it in a dirty bookshop in Soho a magazine called Transvestia and I thought what and this was a magazine produced by a Dr Virginia Prince who was an American pharmacist and she had 
organised a thing called Phi Pi Epsilon, very American, which stands for Full Personality Expression. And the essence of her thesis was that you could be a woman, though male. So the goal of her organisation was to try to maintain marriages or or um, relationships between men and women when one or the other, usually the one that was officially male, um, gender migrated by cross-dressing or by being um, what eventually we came to know as transsexual. Um, the whole vocabulary of gender was a n- dreadful, dreadful nuisance. However, what what I learnt was that in the States there were about 500 people like that and they would seem vaguely, you know, it rang bells. Anyway, Virginia Prince's organisation, she called Phi Pi Epsilon, standing for Full Personality Expression, she ran it like a secret society, a sort of sorority. Um, in those initial days, the majority of members were US, but they had an overseas um, chapter, a European chapter, if you like, and I discovered that there were two or three people in France, and I speak French, which is helpful, and there were other people, um, one in Ireland and two in England. And so we wrote to each other through the contact system. And uh, the leading light then was a person called Alga Campbell, who was from the Republic of Ireland. And there was a Belgian called Lucy and um, another Brit called Sylvia. And we corresponded and corresponded. And there was an initial first meeting in 1966, just before I got married, um, where they first of all had a meeting in London. And then we had our first real full meeting in a hotel in Southampton. And Alga, being Irish, came up with this brilliant idea. We'll call our organisation, which will be affiliated to Phi Pi Epsilon, the Beaumont Society, after the Chevalier Déon de Beaumont, who was um, a French spy who had uh, spied in Russia, in Imperial Russia, disguised as a woman, quite possibly was intersex. And there are lots of very interesting books about the Chevalier. Um, Chevalier actually earned a living by sword fencing, and the betting as to which gender the Chevalier was was phenomenal, equivalent to millions of pounds And when when she died. That's another story. Anyway, the Beaumont Society sounded like a respectable thing um, because Beaumont is an old uh, French aristocratic surname. Um, we've, we've founded this society and Alga said, well, we'll have to give the impression there are more of us than there really are. We'll call you number 100, Alice. I'll be 99, Sylvia will be 98 and uh, Lucy will be number 101. And... Uh, We'll have a meeting, and we put an ad in Exchange and Mart, <laughs> explaining v- rather vaguely what was happening, and would people contact us through this contact system to um, a post postal uh, forwarding company called British Monomark, and the address was BM three hundred eight four London WC one V three X. So we had an anonymous anonymous. Um, forwarding centre and people could write um, and maintain their security because secrecy was important Um, and eventually um, some months later we discovered there were actually 15 people in the UK who who, um, were members 
and we had the very first me- meeting of the Beaumont Society in this hotel, and it consisted of eleven members and four spouses and my dog. And uh, he he became an honorary member of the society. I've always had a dog called Oliver, and of course he attended all the meetings. He had species dysphoria. Uh, he really did believe he was a human being. I think he probably was, actually. <laughs> anyway, um, after that first meeting, um, the whole thing expanded, and we had more and more meetings, and we evolved a constitution. And... Um, in those days, it was very, very important that people did not confuse gender migrating, modern terminology, with drag. Because in the public mind, homosexuals are men who dress as women to have sex with other men. And the assumption was if a guy was caught in a dress, he was charged with importuning um, or all sorts of other offences. If he was a genuine homosexual, he'd probably be beaten up by the police as well. He'd certainly be ridiculed. And I've come across countless cases where police brutality against gays and against trans people has been very obvious back in the 60s and 70s. It was appalling. And um, the strange thing is policemen at policemen's balls very often cross-dress. There's a story there somewhere. Anyway... um, Gradually, the society got more and more um, significant, and uh, a chap called Stephen Whittle was the first female to male who joined the society. And the principle of the society was it was a society which maintained people's secrecy, if they wished, where um, there would be meetings in people's homes, and there would also be meetings in public places which were accepting the situation and we produced a quarterly journal and um, at one stage Stephen and I edited and prepared the magazine by literally cutting and pasting. We'd type up an article and then stick it onto (laughs) the paper. Literally, the technology was very primitive way back then. Anyway, um, after about a year or so, we'd got nearly 100 members and we decided to have a, a national dinner and uh, I was tasked with going to the Forum restaurant, which is Broadcasting House, to arrange for this first national dinner. And I explained to the management, look, this is going to be a really respectable evening, and at this evening there will be people dressed as women, and some of them won't be women, so please address them properly and accordingly. Unfortunately, the manager had got the wrong end of the stick because a lot of people took their wives and partners with them and all the staff called everybody sir, including all the wives. (laughs) (laughs) That's so English, isn't it? (laughs) And uh, it was was marvellously funny. And um, the strange thing was there was a very high proportion of the members seemed to be engineers. That's another very strange thing because... As a matter of interest, Alka said, oh, I'm an engineer. Who else is an engineer? And about 30 people put their hands up. And eventually, years later, it turned out that there was a group of about 30 people who were into steam trains, who'd, who'd dress up as ladies and play with steam trains. Now, that is very English, I think, and I love it. There was a chapter of steam trannies. <laughs> anyway, the society, having founded... Um, was providing a safe place for people to go who who either were cross-dressing 
uh, transvestites, as the terms came, or who were transgendered, transsexual, whatever terminology you want to use. The majority of the membership was in the direction male to female rather than the other direction. But the society wanted to be available to anybody in that position. Now, the interesting thing was back in the 60s and 70s, if you were a woman who cross-dressed or was transgendered, you would, generally speaking, be absolutely acceptable, um, dressed however you wished, wherever you went. And um, if you went to a, a lesbian event, there'd always be about half the, the dykes would be dressed in suits and ties. Mm. It was acceptable behaviour. But if, if a man turned up at an, in an evening frock or went shopping in Sainsbury's in a summer dress, he'd be for the high jump. And interestingly enough, in those days, if you were gay or cross-dressed, you could not get a job in any job, any employment where the official secret acts mm. was, was was concerned. And um, one way the society had to make certain it differentiated between um, being identified as gay, it was never ever anti-gay, and, and being identified as something different was it had to exclude people who admitted that they were gay and for that purposes we had a thing called sponsorship well the process of sponsorship meant that a regional organiser would meet a new member and then ask them about themselves and it was all in complete confidence and uh, people needn't give their address or employment or even their proper name so it was a secret society the reason for that was, um, for example, one of the area contacts in Hampshire had stupidly gone out to post a letter in, in a dress of his wife's, and the police arrested, paraded him, it hit the local papers, he lost his job, the wife stood by her husband, but the police, again, were um, causing a person frightful grease, grief by um, their attitude. Anyway, um, so security was important, secrecy was important. Nothing immoral or improper happened at society meetings. In fact, they were all like WI meetings. The Beaumont Society gradually gained a reputation for being middle-aged, middle-class, twin-set-and-pearls type of thing. Very, very tame indeed. But the point was it gave the cross-dressers in particular a chance to relax in a frock, and that was what was important to them. And it gave the people who were moving towards gender reassignment which began to be a possibility because there were all the stories of, of what was happening in Morocco with Roberta Cowell and Christine Jorgensen and all those things and there were horror stories coming out, out about the surgery that was available and people were were thinking well god yes I'd love to have the surgery but it it's awful and you know, I saw some of the early versions of surgery they were appalling they were disgusting mm -hmm. the attitudes of surgeons maybe not the attitude, the skill of surgeons seem to be that any hole will do, putting it very crudely. And in terms of phalloplasty, it was not possible for the, for the chaps. Anyway, as, as, as um, I was saying about the security thing, one person I had to interview to sponsor was uh, working in one of our colonies, because we still had colonies then, and I ha arranged to meet this person at a particular place. We were both be carrying a copy of of she I think it was and uh, I interviewed this person uh, and once we'd identified ourselves this person then told me 
which bank account I had, how many children I had, what I was working at. They had done a complete and thorough investigation, which was the sort of investigation they carry out on people who are about to work in, in defence. I was really horrified. My my privacy had been utterly invaded. And um, But his attitude was, I've got as much on you as you've got on me. And I thought, this is disgusting and appalling. Anyway, time went by, and I'm, I was... I was president of the Beaumont Society for seven years and it did save a number of relationships and saved a number of people from from feeling isolated and frightened and lonely because they were weird, queer, whatever word you want to use. The basic thing was if you were all outsiders but together you didn't feel quite so outside and that was really good. Anyway, time went by and I heard about somebody called Judy Cousins and she was a remarkable person. She'd been uh, an officer in the army, married with children, and uh, she'd manufactured her own death, pretended to have died in a climbing accident, leaving a wife and children very well provided for, and then re-emerged elsewhere with a completely new name, Judy Cousins. But Judy was a golfer, a very keen golfer, and eventually people did put two and two together and it must have been frightful for the wife to discover that her husband mm. wasn't dead. So I disapprove of that tremendously. Anyway, her organisation, she called the Self-Help Association for Transsexuals, S-H-A-F-T, Shaft. I said, Judy, think about the words. <laughs> she did not understand no. it wasn't a good title <laughs> for an organisation for trans people. Anyway, as time went by, um, uh, Shaft had all sorts of problems. And one thing that seemed very, very obvious was there was dispute between transvestites and transsexuals. There was dispute between the female to male and the male to female. And all these small groups and organisations were at each other's throats instead of helping each other. And it got more and more silly. And I thought, this is getting more and more ridiculous. And and obviously, you know, divide and rule is something which has kept gender minorities on the fringe of society forever. Anyway, time went by and Shaft, um, with all these disputes and so on, seemed to be rather introverted. And I thought the essential thing is the client group, the trans people, the intersexes, the cross-dressers even, need to have some sort of dialogue with the professionals in the field, whereby the, the psychologists, psychiatrists, surgeons, endocrinologists actually met human beings as human beings instead of making up a theory and working with the theory and trying to make pe people fit the theory. And all sorts of research papers had been produced with inadequate numbers of people so that they were statistically invalid and half the research work done before 1990 was dreadful in terms of um, validity, peer, peer group um, reviews and so on. However, as time went by, um, I joined a thing called the Harry Benjamin Gender Dysphoria Association. Harry Benjamin brought out a book called um, The Transsexual Phenomenon and it was the first book which looked frankly at uh, transsexuality um, in any depth. One other uh, person from that flock, if you like, was uh, Professor Richard Green, and he'd produced a paper on sissy boys, where he'd, he'd 
reviewed 32 boys who are showing um, female gender development in childhood in terms of their play. And his conclusion was that sissy boys turned out to be drag queens when they grew up rather than transsexual. Um, I hate using all these these shorthand Mm. terms because people are much more complex than that and none of them are meant to offend anybody. Good luck to all drag queens. Anyway, um, so I thought I'll join the Harry Benjamin Association because I have a reasonable degree of of knowledge and so on. And uh, at the Harry Benjamin Association uh, meeting that I went to first, which was in Bordeaux, Half the proceedings were in French and half in English, so I wasn't at a disadvantage. And uh, I made various contacts. And and so I decided to go each Harry Benjamin Gender Dysphoria Association meeting that happened in Europe. I couldn't afford to go to the ones in the States. But what became very clear was that the Americans were running the show. Mm. They were running the show in Europe as well as in America. Any sort of standards of care were developed to protect the surgeon against any um, litigation, the surgeon and the psychiatrist. What they wanted above all was to create standards of care which protected the practitioners rather than produced Mm. the best service possible for their client group. And the whole thing seemed to be revolving around psychiatry rather than psychology or counselling, which seemed rather strange. The whole thing was super-medicalised. Anyway... Time went by and I'd made lots and lots of contacts. I got to know Professor Louis Huron, who's a great hero of mine. And, and, and we're in the late 1980s now. Yeah, yeah. we've got a... I'm, I'm trying to short... I don't want to go on too no. long. Yeah, effectively, what, it, what happened was I now had contacts with all the leading Europeans and Americans who were involved. And, of course, uh, with Charing Cross Hospital as well. And there again, this is another story. Each hospital unit that had a so-called uh, gender clinic um, had its own standards of care, depending on who was in charge. I got to know Russell Reed when he worked uh, at Charing Cross, and Don Montgomery and Richard Green and all these these splendid chaps. And um, I thought it's time we had a British conference, which was all inclusive, client group and and. Uh, the professionals in the field and some of the people in the field were actually professionals in the field anyway by that time I was a a, a qualified nurse and so had a sort of medical credential and um, so we I well no I'll say I because I did most of the work I organized the very first gender dysphoria conference at Manchester University at Hume Hall and uh, we had about 200 delegates and 30 odd speakers it was very, very hard work um, to organise a conference, to write your own uh, piece of, of work and present it, and to make sure everybody's needs were met. But it was really wonderful because at the very first conference, we had every type of trans and intersex, every type of, of, of cross-dressing or cross-gender behaviours. We had the... Psychiatrists, surgeons, counsellors, uh, social workers, um, electrologists, um, sp- speech therapists—all every type of person you can imagine who who was interested—and people were talking to each other, listening to each other, communicating, and that was really, really important. 
as time went by, um, I, you know, organised seven of these conferences. And my greatest help with all these conferences was a wonderful person, Jed Bland, and uh, I'll never stop thanking him for all his hard work. We produced conference reports, which you can see on the internet, and uh, I've still got these publications for sale if anybody wants them. Um, we also uh, produced various books. Uh, I produced a, a, a booklet which was how to deal with the whole business of, of changing your documentation and uh, what is required in terms of uh, surgery and so on, the things to, to help you get by, basically a do-it-yourself book, as how to not make too many mistakes. Um, and then eventually I thought it would be a good idea if we formed an organisation in the UK which was specifically for transgendered people which we called the gender trust which became the second registered charity dealing with gender problems i hadn't already said this but in the beaumont society years back we'd found that we got calls from people who had problems much greater than i need somewhere to dress we needed to get the professionals among us together who'd got experience of Samaritan work, nursing, medicine. There were three doctors, myself and others. And um, so we pr produced a new registered charity, the first, the Beaumont Trust, which is still running, um, which had professionals in the field giving their time, running a helpline and so on. But of course the majority of calls were from people with cross-dressing issues rather than with... Um, the full uh, transgendered issues, but there were also partners and parents and children and the range of people who had these the difficulties thrown up by gender dysphoria, as it became known, was immense. So we founded the Gender Trust, which became the second registered charity, and uh, that got off the ground with its own helpline. Um, there was a problem... I had with the Gender Trust because um, having founded it and in fact subsidised it for the first year um, I'd written a book on uh, a guide to transsexuality and um, that book was my my um, copyright and I'd uh, allowed the Gender Trust to use it as a means of making a, a little bit of fun towards doing the job it was doing at the same time, I was providing counselling because by that time I'd done a postgraduate degree in counselling psychology and um, I was providing counselling. And as you know, counselling is a contract between a person in complete confidentiality with a client. The um, legal expert in the gender trust said the trustees, because of fiduciary duty, had a right to of access to all my notes. The standards of, of care under the British Association of Counsellors would go bananas, and I would go bananas, if anybody who was not the client or the counsellor mm. had access to other people's notes. So I resigned from the Gender Trust, and I had to take them to court to make sure that my copyright was maintained. I didn't want any money from them. Um, and fortunately, the court upheld that. It is a shame, um, because we were doing very good work together. Anyway, uh, in some respects, it was a good thing, because it freed me up a little bit from from the uh, 
duties that were involved with being involved in running two uh, registered charities and being a, still an active participant in the Beaumont Society. Uh, I'd enough on my plate. So I then founded Gendies, which was uh, an organisation that was including trans people and practitioners in their care. And yes, I was very lucky in that my, uh, so many of my contacts through running the conferences became patrons and that main, maintained this ongoing um, dialogue between professionals in the field and and the trans people and that was very good. What is interesting is now we've made so many strides. Um, we've all worked so very, very hard and the law is now less of an ass than it was. It still is an ass in some respects. And Anyway, the, the situation is very different for a young person who's trans or intersex, but there is still an awful long way to go. Um, I, I, I'm quite involved with the General Nursing Council on Standards of Care in Nursing, and as a nurse, um, I was a nurse from 1977 until I retired in 2000 and three so it's a long time in fact I was a matron at one stage and oh, quite a long time and increasingly my interests have been in care of the elderly of course but I've kept up an interest in helping hopefully uh, as many trans people as I could and intersex people I haven't got the energy or the time to organise the conferences any longer Barbara Ross took up that uh, banner another good friend um but there's been a tremendous amount of work done by a very few volunteers. And uh, as usual, when you need a job doing, you ask a busy person. Um, one one of the problems one has now, for example, with the, the Beaumont Trust, which is still going strong, is it's very, very hard to get young people, new people involved who are prepared to help. Everybody says, I want your help. No, they didn't even say please. I get letters from people saying, um, can you send me some money and, and some clothes and uh, can you get me a job and accommodation? Not people live much. No, yeah. they're, they're, indeed. I mean, I'd love to be able to wave a magic wand, mm. but I'm not capable of... of I don't have one. <laughs> so if I had, I'd use it. So you, you've you just celebrated your 70th birthday. You yeah. are still busy. You're writing your own biography. Um, you're doing paleontology as well. Ah, yes, you have got to have a passion in life. And I suppose I've got two passions. One is dogs. And my darling dog, Ollie, died aged 21 last year, and that was, broke my heart. The other passion I have, I developed during the sixth form because the experience of finding something that is 100 million years old, that hasn't seen the light of day for 100 million years, makes you feel very young. And... Each time you find a fossil, it is something from a different world almost. The imagination works riot. It gets me out into the countryside, and I adore the British countryside. And, uh, well, I collect fossils, and people who know me think I'm a bit eccentric because my house is full of fossils to the extent that there's hardly anywhere to sit. But the good thing is they all make me feel remarkably young. <laughs> <laughs> As as indeed you are, Alice. Thank you.
I've been talking to Alice Pennell OBE. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is our website, podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Take a look at the subscription options there as well, so you don't miss future shows. Join us again soon for another programme on a topic relating to equality and diversity. For now, though, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Mm-hmm.